you have a copy of God's Word, if you could turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. So go to your New Testament. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, the passage is printed in your bulletin. I encourage you to look there in your Bible if you have one or on a device. We are continuing our study this morning through the Gospel of Mark. Let me remind you of where we are because I think it's easy to forget, but we are in the last week of Jesus' life. One week of Jesus' life, the last week, takes up nearly a third of the Gospel of Mark. Look at verses 1 and 2 there in the bulletin or in your Bible, and you'll note that the religious establishment, we've seen this before, but they've been wanting to get their hands on Jesus for some time. And at this point in the Gospel of Mark, they can hardly restrain themselves. The tensions are high. Look at verse 2. Chief priests and the teachers of the law, they have to bide their time. Uh to get their hands on Jesus because it's Passover, and Passover meant lots of people, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. Historian Josephus estimates even a few million people were in Jerusalem at this time. And so you can imagine if they mess with Jesus, they're afraid that they might start a riot in the town of Jerusalem. And it's at just this point that Mark introduces the story that we're going to look at this morning. And it will seem, and I'm preparing you for us to read this, but it's going to seem like a pause in the narrative. It seems random. It seems abrupt and out of place at first glance. But remember, one of Mark's main teaching styles is to teach us by using contrast. That's what we see in this passage we're about to read. We see another Markin sandwich, as it's been called. If you look at verses 1 and 2 as I read, you're going to see this. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11, the bread of the sandwich. You're going to see hatred and betrayal from the religious leaders in Judas. Verses the meat of the sandwich, verses 3 through 9. We see the point of the passage, which is the devotion of the woman. And the woman stands in stark contrast with the hatred of the religious leaders in this passage and the hatred and betrayal of Judas. Follow along with me. I think you'll see what I mean as we read. This is God's Word. Verse 1 of chapter 14. It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you and Whenever you want, you can do good for them. 
but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Pray with me. Father, send your spirit. You tell us that your word is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in all righteousness. And we pray that you would do all of those things in our hearts this morning. Meet us where we're at. Give us something, give everyone in here something that we can hold on to this morning. Something that would challenge us or encourage us or correct us in some way. Show us the Lord Jesus. May we worship him extravagantly the way we see this, wor- this woman worshiping him in this passage. Make Jesus more beautiful to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, What do you treasure this morning? I want to begin with that question. What do you treasure this morning? Really treasure. Every one of us treasures something. Matthew is correct when he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look around and we see everyone treasuring something. People will do anything and everything to get their treasure. Think about the Olympics. That's relevant for now. Olympic athletes or all athletes for that matter, whether it's a national championship or an Olympic medal, what do they do to get that treasure? They train for hours and hours and hours to get their treasure. Students train, study for hours to get the treasure of a certain degree. But we also know, and we can think of, again, lots of examples, but you also know that it can also, people's treasure can lead them to do very bad things, terrible things. Terrible things like steal or to stab a co-worker in the back so that they can get that treasured position in the company. And sometimes people's treasure leads them to do, think about this passage, outlandish things, crazy looking things so that they can get their treasure. That is what we see in this passage. In Mark chapter 14, we move from the crowded streets of the Passover, and we're going to zoom in at one single moment around a dinner table in a home in Bethany, which is just a short distance, two miles from Jerusalem. And around this dinner table, there were many people, but the passage highlights two people. An unnamed woman and Judas. And what we're going to see is that both of them treasured something. And their treasure led them to respond in very different ways. For one, their treasure led to life. And for the other, their treasure led to death and betrayal. And so let's zoom in around this dinner table at Bethany, and I want us to see, as we do, three things in this passage. 
I want us to see the worship. Secondly, the warning. And then lastly, the way. The worship, the warning, the way. By way, I mean how do we get there? How do we get to worshiping Jesus the way we see this woman worshiping Jesus? What's the way forward? So let's look at those three things. Number one, the worship. Look at verse 3. Jesus again is at Bethany's around the table and notice very intentionally says at the home of Simon the leper. Most likely this was someone that Jesus had healed at some point in his ministry. But I want you to also notice it's a reminder for us, isn't it? The kinds of people that Jesus hung out with. He hung out with outsiders and outcasts. And as he's reclining at this table and the people are reclining, the folks at this dinner party witness one of the most remarkable, outlandish things that they had seen in their entire lives. A woman comes with a very expensive jar of perfume. She breaks it open and she pours it on the head of Jesus. In John's account, he tells us it was a pound of perfume. A pound, uh, let's think about a two-liter bottle. Uh, One liter of water is a pound. And so think about that. A liter of perfume being poured on Jesus' head. Think about what that would have been like if you would have been in the room. Commentators say this was most likely a a family heirloom of some sort that had been passed down from generation to generation. It was her treasure Let me put it in today's terms. We would call it maybe a rainy day fund, emergency fund. We would call it maybe a 401k or her net worth perhaps. And it was very costly. And we know it was very costly by looking at verse 5. It was worth 300 denarii, which was a year's wage in the day. And so a year's wage, let's put it in today's terms again, The state of Alabama, an average year's wage is $45,000. So this woman takes $45,000 and she pours it on Jesus. She takes this alabaster jar and she breaks it. And the breaking of this jar open symbolizes for us the totality of the gift. This can never be used again. And she pours her life savings on Jesus. I love Sinclair Ferguson writing about this passage. He says, in a moment of quiet, quiet commitment, she had resolved that Jesus should receive her most precious possession. In gratitude for the past, she poured out her future and her security on Jesus. And notice the reaction next of those who were at the dinner party watching the extravagant worship of this woman. Look at verse 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly. The word indignant there, uh, it means uh, nostrils flaring kind of anger. That's that's the anger that's being uh, exhibited here. And they say, why was the ointment wasted like that? It could have been used and given to the poor. And what's the implication of that statement? The implication of that statement is that the disciples obviously did not think that Jesus was worthy 
of such extravagance. Look at Jesus' response to this woman's actions, verses 6 and 7. Let's just keep walking through the passage. She praises Jesus because she praises Jesus, and Jesus praises her because she had put him before everything else. Look at what he says. She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Let me be clear. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? That's a uh, Bible study principle 101. Jesus, and what I mean by that, Jesus is obviously, he's not saying here, do not serve the poor. And we know that because we look at other places in Scripture and other places in the gospel. Jesus cares a lot about serving and loving the poor. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that the richness of his death, the richness of his death would bring to the world both rich and poor what it would bring to the world, which is salvation for the world. What it would bring is far more important than anything else. And this woman got that, and she realized that. How? Because this woman had listened to Jesus' teaching. She'd been around Jesus. She understood Jesus. She knew that Jesus would not be here much longer. Look at verse 8. And as it points out, she anointed Jesus for his burial. This woman knew that Jesus was the one who was poor. And she knew that Jesus, days from now, would hang even poorer than he is in this moment. He would hang from a cross naked as he was being crucified. He would become poor so that you and I might become rich. Her critics, Jesus' disciples, they stand on the outside looking at this woman in anger, nostrils flaring kind of anger, and they do nothing. And we've seen this all the way through the Gospels. Let me point it out here. Insiders miss Jesus. And it's the outsiders like this unnamed woman who get Jesus. You see, Jesus told his disciples, hasn't he, many, many times up until this point that he was heading to a cross and that he was going to suffer and die. And what they failed to do and perhaps even understand this unnamed woman, she understood and she responds appropriately. And so what do we learn? What's the so what? Well, very simply, we learn here that Jesus loves extravagant worship. Remember, it's Wednesday of Holy Week. Yesterday, that's back in chapter 12, Jesus was at the temple. And remember, Martin preached at the temple. And what, while Jesus was in the temple, what stood out to Jesus in chapter 12? The day before this, you know what stood out to Jesus? A woman's offering. Remember that? A widow's coin that she was giving. Now, a day later, Jesus is at, not in the temple. He's at a dinner party. And what stands out to him? What is beautiful to Jesus in this moment? A woman's offering. Why? 
because they're both acts of extravagant worship. One commentator said, and listen to this, this is strong. The world has no problem with too much wealth. The world has no problem with too much power or sex, but it does have a problem with too much Jesus. You see that around you? The world, he goes on to say, has never had a problem with Jesus in moderation. And we hear that, and when we first hear that, we say, yes. But I want you to think with me, how often do we do the exact same thing? How often can the exact same thing be said and true of us? We want Jesus, but Jesus, just a little bit of Jesus. Not too much Jesus that's going to make us uncomfortable. How often are we afraid to stand out, speak up, or to share our faith because we're afraid that we might come across as uncool or come across as being fanatical or come across as being just a little bit over the top? You see, we want Jesus, but not too much Jesus, don't we? Another question, if you were at this dinner party, How would you have responded to what we see this woman doing? You want to know how I would have responded sadly? Who's the weirdo? I would have said, I would have been embarrassed for her. I would have, this is a little bit much, isn't it? A little bit over the top. What does it look like for us? to worship Jesus extravagantly, Mark chapter 14 shows us. It shows us what Jesus is after in our lives, that God means that when it comes to Jesus, extravagant worship means that there is nothing that is below us when it comes to worshiping him. It means that we're willing to make ourselves uncomfortable and to do the lowliest thing for Jesus. It means that we treasure him so deeply that we're willing to stand out, that we're willing to lose reputation, that we're willing to come across uncool and lose social respect. Worshiping Jesus extravagantly means that we give resources away, that we give everything, our most precious possessions, in order to serve Jesus. It means that we're simply, think about this woman, she's just happy to be at the table. She's just happy and glad to be with Jesus rather than thinking like the disciples, what do I need to do for Jesus? She just wants to be with Jesus. Extravagant worship looks like when someone tries to tell you to pull back and says, that's a little much, that's a little too radical, you don't blink. And the reason why you don't blink is because you know that Jesus defends you just like he defends this woman. Nothing gets in the way of worshiping him because Jesus is worthy of our worship. And so the question before us this morning is, how would Jesus describe our worship? How would he describe it corporately, but also how would he describe our worship individually? Would Jesus say that our worship of him is beautiful? 
If it is not extravagant, perhaps it's because we still have things in our jar that we refuse to pour out for him. Let's look at our second point. The warning. Look at verse 5 again. John's account of this in chapter 12, we know that the person who said this, this rebuke of this woman, came from the mouth of Judas. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad. Is there not a sadder verse in all of the Bible? They were glad that they were about to take Jesus down, that they had found a way to do it and not make a, and cause a riot. And they promised him money in order to do it. Note there the word, and it's easy to miss, the word then at the beginning of chapter 12. So here it is. Let me set it up. Judas had witnessed this extravagant act of worship, this devotion of this unnamed woman, and he hears Jesus praise her for it. Then Judas went to the chief priest to betray him. Here's the point. It was this action by this woman that pushed Judas right on over the edge. He's embarrassed and he can't stand the fact that Jesus accepts the worship of this woman. The one thing that Judas could not tolerate was wholehearted devotion to Jesus for no other reason and for no other motive than love. He was sickened by Jesus' response and so he leaves and he sells Jesus out for pennies. So what does this teach us? What do we learn here from looking at Judas? What's the warning for us? Well, one thing I think we can learn is that it teaches us that failing to worship Jesus leads to foolishness, to sin, and to shame. When we ignore what Jesus says is beautiful, it leads us in the wrong direction, doesn't it? Think about the folly of Judas here and what he displays before us. He is angry at this woman because she has poured out a year's wage on Jesus and yet he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver which is not even half the value of the ointment and the perfume. You see it? Foolishness. Folly. You were made as a human being created in the image of God. You were made to worship God. And when you push against that and don't do that, it splinters up your life. And it leads you uh, into a direction that you do not want to go and your life doesn't work right and we do not see things clearly. So one of the takeaways of this passage is don't take your eyes off what Jesus says is beautiful. The other thing we learn from Judas, this is a little uh, stronger, is that the greater your intimacy and proximity to Jesus, it requires greater watchfulness over your life. Let me say that again. The greater your proximity and intimacy with Jesus requires greater watchfulness over your life. Why do I say that? Think about who Judas is. Look at verse 10. It's not an accident that Mark says very specifically, one of the... 12, he was one of Jesus' best friends. 
He's the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer. In other words, Judas was considered trustworthy. No one saw this coming. There's not one thing that Judas said or did that led people to think this guy's about to sell us out and to sell Jesus out and to betray him. Every one of the disciples thought that he was one of us and that he was all in. And when we hear Judas, we don't normally think that. We think, oh, he's angry and he's kind of making all of these moves behind the scene and he's, it seems, and he's really frustrated and he hates Jesus and he has this constant scowl on his face. But what I want you to see is he wasn't any different than any of the other disciples. How do we know? Well, later in Mark 14, which we'll get to next week, Jesus has all of the disciples in a room and he looks at them And he says, one of you is about to betray me. And you remember how they responded? Shocking. They said, they looked around the room and said, is it me? You see the point? All of them knew they were uh, capable of doing exactly what Judas did. And they did not, Judas did not stand out. He did not look any different than any of other any of Jesus' other friends. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee your faithfulness to Jesus. And if you're not awake yet, that should wake you up. That is a wake-up call to every single one of us in this room this morning. You are to have a close watch on your life. Do you watch your life closely? Do you have friends? No one's objective about themselves, right? Do you have friends who will help you keep a close watch on your life? We all need them. Because there is a barrier to our devotion to Jesus. There is a barrier to our extravagant worship of Jesus, and it's not out there, it's in here. It is inside of us. It is our hearts. And the warning for us, and it's a frightening warning because you see how subtle it is to use Jesus. You see, in our hearts, we're either worshiping Jesus and adoring Jesus or we're using Jesus. Think about this passage. Think about how subtle it is. At first glance, it sounds good, doesn't it? Give this to the poor. Give this away. No one of, not one of us would object to that. It doesn't sound like betrayal. And so what's the problem then? Judas's sin was selling Jesus. Judas's sin was he was following Jesus up until a point. He was willing to follow until it cost him something. Let me say it another way. Judas is real God was power, money, and a comfortable life. Judas liked Jesus. He was willing to follow Jesus until it cost him. Judas did not want Jesus to mess with his life. Judas did not want Jesus to get too close. He did not want, to ask, he did not want Jesus to ask him to change anything or to sacrifice anything. This woman, on the other hand, she was all in. And it was too much for Judas because it brought Jesus too close. And Judas wanted to keep him at arm's length and at a distance. 
And so friends, whatever you don't pour out for Jesus is your real treasure. And so what is it this morning that you don't want to pour out? What is it that's in your jar that you want to keep to yourself? Let me put it another way. What is it that's in your jar, and we all got them, that we're white-knuckling, holding with clenched fists, that we say, Jesus, I love you, I want to follow you, I like being around you, but don't go for this. Don't mess with this. This is mine. Whatever that is, that's your real treasure. Friends, the difference between Judas and us is not that he fell and we don't. We're Judas. That's what I'm trying to say. Our hearts are just like his heart. They're the same. We're just like him. And so what then is the difference? The difference is repentance. Judas didn't repent after he sinned. Instead, Judas despaired. He had no place to take his failures. You do. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of Jesus. We can go to Jesus in repentance and faith and we can take our clenched fist and we can say, Jesus, help me. Forgive me. I don't want to give these things up. They're hard for me to give up. Would you please help me? I cannot do this without you. Fill me with your spirit. Lastly, the way. How do we live lives, the life that we see lived out before us with this woman? How do we live that devoted to Jesus? Verse 9 gives us a hint. Wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. This woman's story is included in the gospel because it's a picture for us. It's a demonstration of what happens in a person's life when they experience the grace and mercy of Jesus. Again, over and over in Mark, who are the people that love Jesus and give everything for Jesus, it's the people that see their need. It's needy people that know that they're sinners and that they need the grace and mercy of Jesus more than anything else. Who misses Jesus? The self-righteous. Because they don't think they need anything. It's easy in this passage to look, if you look at it, and think that Jesus is the person in the story that is treasured the most. We look at Mary and we think she's the one that's given up the most, that she gave up her retirement and that she must really have treasured Jesus. But believe it or not, it's not Jesus who has treasured the most in this passage. You know who it is? It's you. You are the one that has treasured the most because in order for Jesus to treasure you, it cost him a whole lot more than a retirement plan. It cost Jesus his life. That is what we need the most this morning. That is the way to extravagant worship and devotion that we see in this woman. What we need is to see Jesus pouring out everything in his jar for you. Because that is what he did. Hebrews chapter 12 Jesus, 
who for the joy set before him, what was the joy set before him? You, the church. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, bearing its shame. Helen Rosenveer was from Belfast, Ireland. She was highly educated uh, from Cambridge. She was a skilled surgeon. And when she was younger, her whole question in life uh, was this question. Is it worth it? That's what she asked her entire life, starting at a very young age. From mundane things from, to significant things, is it worth it? She would look at a college class and she would ask the question, is it worth it? She would be asked out on a date. She would ask the question, is it worth it? She would look at a book that she wanted to buy. Is it worth it? When she was in high school, she was presented with the gospel and presented with Christianity, and she asked the question, is it worth it? She said, yes, it was worth it. She gave her life to Christ, professed faith in him, went off to college, was at a Christian conference for college students, and the speaker was asking the students to go overseas and to become missionaries and to give their lives to missions for the rest of their life. And she, of course, asked the question, is it worth it? She determined that, yes, it was worth it, and so she moved to Belgian Congo in Africa, and she served for 11 years working with neglected children with leprosy. She built schools for them. She helped build hospitals and churches until an uprising in the Belgian Congo in 1964 when the government officials came in and they ransacked the village and they destroyed her schools and burned down the hospitals and then they came for her. They came to her hut in her village and they destroyed everything. They dragged her out and they brutally beat her and they kicked in her teeth with their boots. They broke her glasses so that she was not able to see where the next blow was coming from. They dragged her to the middle of the village. They tied her around a tree and they took her journal which had 11 years of work. It was her life work, so to speak. She planned on turning it into a book one day. It was her whole life, and they took that journal, and they burned it in a fire, and they laughed, and they mocked at her, and through gritted teeth, she asked the question, is it worth it? And as she was in this terrible situation, she said the Holy Spirit came on her and settled her and began to speak to her And she said, finally, in that moment, she realized her entire life she had been asking the wrong question. The question was not, is it worth it? The question is, is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus worthy of every sacrifice? And in that terrible moment, as she's tied to a tree, she looks up into heaven and she says, oh, Jesus, you are worth it, for thou art worthy. She had given everything, and it's when she had poured out everything that she got her real treasure. How does that happen? 
Well, because she realized Jesus was worthy because Jesus had sacrificed and poured everything out his entire life for her. And friends, to the degree that you see Jesus pouring out his jar for you is to the degree that you will pour out your jar for him. When you see, when I see Jesus pouring out his jar for us, emptying everything, his entire life, then we will not begrudgingly, we will gladly pour out our jars for him. You are his treasure. Will you make him yours this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for pouring out everything for us so that you could have us, so that you could be with us. There are things in our jars, in our flask, alabaster flask, so to speak, uh, like this woman um, that we're holding on to and that we're not willing to give up. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to free us from those things, to realize that life is in extravagant worship of Jesus. That is where life is found. Would you help us to know also now as we come to this table and see the gospel visibly before us in the Lord's Supper? Encourage us, help us to know that you really have given everything. You've poured out everything for us. And may that lead us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.